This is the Pride and Prejudice podcast from The Economist Group, which explores the economic and business case for LGBT inclusion. I'm Matthew Bishop, and today I'm talking with three-time NCAA uh, All-American wrestler and founder and executive director of Athlete Ally, Hudson Taylor. Now, Athlete Ally is a non-profit organization dedicated to encouraging athletes, coaches, parents, fans, and other members from the sports community to respect all individuals involved in sports, regardless of perceived or actual sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. And so needless to say, our topic today is going to be uh, sport and how sport is changing. Is it becoming more inclusive? It seems to me, Hudson, this is where we'll start. I mean, it seems to me sport has lagged behind certainly most of the uh, entertainment industry, if you can call sport entertainment, uh, in embracing LGBT inclusion. And certainly, you know, you you look at things like boxing, where you still have someone like Tyson Fury in Britain, or Mm -hmm. uh, Manny Pacheo, you know, kind of coming out with these incredibly homophobic statements. Why, I mean, how how would you rate out of 10 how far professional sports (laughs) has come? And why, am I right in thinking, that it's, it's lagging behind? Yeah, I think uh, I think in many instances it certainly is lagging behind. Um, I think it's hard to give a, a score to that, mm. but I think uh, ath- sport as an institution has a couple uh, issues that kind of make it lagging behind, and that's, you know, sport is one of the few institutions that is segregated by gender. So from the moment uh, a kid enters sport, it's divided, you know, boys over here, girls over, over there. Uh, and I think sport, you know, is a, is a big, as an important social function in that it teaches boys how to become men and girls how to become women. And I think because of that gender divide, young boys are taught a very narrow definition of masculinity. Young girls are taught a very narrow definition of femininity. And anything that would be perceived to be um, counter to that dominant narrative of masculinity and femininity is then discouraged, is then isolated or excluded. And so through athletic competition, you have this sort of uh, this whittling away of anybody who doesn't look, act, or dress sort of according to the dominant preference of sports culture. Um, you know, as a young male athlete, the easiest way to diminish the efforts of one of your teammates is to associate him with femininity. And we do that by either using homophobic or sexist slurs. And so I think that sort of forms the foundation of some of these issues. Um, I think also, unlike other, other industries, uh, athletes have a, you know, a very short window to make their money, to, to accomplish their lifelong goals. Uh, you have other people who are making decisions about your contracts, how much time you play. And if there's any sense that uh, you know, anti-LGBT uh, attitudes are going to reduce your amount of playing time or reduce the chances of you getting re-signed to a contract or a sponsorship deal, you're not going to be incentivized to speak out or come out. So I suppose that would be yeah. different to the military where I guess you know, you've got a significantly longer career, hopefully you know, 20 years or more, and I guess at that point it becomes... You know, too long a period to not demand your, sure. your, your rights. I, I, I think there is an ongoing calculation of risk versus reward. And in the current framework of sport, the risk of coming out in many instances outweighs the reward of being your authentic selves. Um, that I think even goes especially uh, is especially the case for coaches as well, which is why we've seen an increase of athletes coming out, but we haven't seen an increase of coaches coming out because you know, if you're a coach and you're not winning a national championship, there will always be just cause for you to be fired. So if there's any feeling as though your sexual orientation or your gender identity or expression will 
you know, again, negatively impact your ability to maintain a job, um, you're not going to be incentivized to be yourself. And yet it's pretty clear from your experience that there are, just in the rest, as in the rest of the population, there are a lot of LGBT people who are professional sports people. Absolutely. They've been driven out of the professional sport arena. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, certainly, you know, those who are professional sports people are, you know, 1% of the population, but I would argue that uh, virtually everybody plays sport at one time in their life. So there is something about the culture of sport uh, that is negatively impacting LGBT youth and the LGBT community more broadly from the very beginning we again step onto those playing fields. And so what's been your experience with, with Athlete Ally? I mean, have you been able to sort of figure out a strategy to try and change the culture of sport? I mean, as you say, this is, this is deeply in the DNA <laughs> of sport that you need to have this sort of identity of uh, yeah. gender. Um, well, look, I mean, I think in the last year we've seen more athletes come out, more allies speak out, more teams and leagues take a stand than at any other time in history. So uh, we are in the midst of tremendous progress. Uh, you know, how do we do that? How do we get there? Um, is still a bit of a challenge. I think that there are sort of proactive and reactive methods of advocacy. In other words, the reactive ones are when something bad happens, how are we responding to it? When an athlete comes out, how are we responding to it? So those are reactive opportunities to have a conversation, to provide education, to change policies. So work um, us through a couple of examples there. I guess take the Manny for charity. Was that an opportunity? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an unfortunate um, confirmation of a mm. lack of inclusive sports culture, but it also is a dialogue that otherwise wouldn't be happening if he hadn't made those comments. So anytime an athlete uses a homophobic slur, it, it provides a platform for us to engage in a dialogue about, you know, why did they use that language? Why is that, you know, accepted in, in sports culture? How do we go about changing that? Um, and I think, you know, sport as a platform is, you know, sport is a language that speaks to everybody, right? Everybody can has a, a favorite team or a favorite athlete or can remember uh, a time in, in their lives in which sport played a role. So I think uh, the platform of sport can be incredibly powerful um, but again those reactive opportunities have been tremendous for us in shaping and changing uh, the conversation. And I suppose we must now be at the point where a professional sports team will feel obliged for branding reasons and nothing else <laughs> that if one of its players does come out it has to stand by them. I, I think there are a lot of reasons why you know so why is this important to a team to a league to an athlete there are a lot of different whys. Um, I think I'd argue that there should, should be a certain human rights component to this, that everybody deserves to have equal access, opportunity, and experience in whatever team or league or country of which they are a part. Uh, but yes, from an economic standpoint, there is certainly, I think, a, a, a great opportunity in being an inclusive sports program. I mean, if we look at the cumulative spending power of the LGBT community, it's some you know, $900 billion. So if you stand out amongst your, your competitors as being a, a, a company uh, or an entity that is supporting and embracing of the LGBT community, that's going to lead to more revenue. Uh, I think we've seen that come from the business world very strongly. I think that the business world in particular has, uh, has been competitive in the degree to which they have been inclusive of the LGBT community. Um, but regardless of... I, I think 
how strong of an argument, an economic argument we can make. Um, the reality is that there are still many, many people within sporting institutions who are not educated or passionate about LGBT issues, who probably still use heteronormative or homophobic or sexist language regularly. Um, and so I think there are still lots of uh, areas where we need to educate those who are involved in sport, those who have the decision-making power to change culture, to change the climate, um, before we're going to have a, an environment in which I think uh, a professional LGBT, male LGBT athlete in particular uh, can come out and be welcomed and respected. Well, it's interesting the point you made earlier about coaches. I mean, are we seeing any emerging coaches who are becoming role models for using different language, for not you know, calling you know, players girls or whatever, they, you know, mm. making these sort of slurring terms as a motivational technique? Is there a different language, a different style of coaching that's proving effective against the, the old style? Yeah, I, I don't know if you can paint uh, a, a broad brushstroke on that, but I would say that um, when I look at coaching history, those coaches who have been the most successful are not the ones that coach through fear. They coach through love and acceptance and understanding. Um, you know, our motto at Athlete Ally is victory through unity. It's this belief that when we have a united team, we will be more successful. And any amount of discriminatory language or conduct, it divides us and makes us less able to accomplish our athletic goals. So I think, you know, in the U.S. in particular, there was a coach, uh, Dean Smith, a uh, very legendary basketball coach for UNC. Um, you know, he had a lot of amazing inclusive policies, you know, no swearing, uh, always pointing to the person who passed you the ball, this, this idea of selflessness. Um, so I, I think those coaches who excel at, at an elite level do understand that it does take a team to be successful. And if we have a culture that isolates or, or excludes a certain segment of that sports culture or sports population, uh, we're not going to have longstanding success. Um, but it's the, the, the challenge in all this is that these systems of discrimination are cyclical. Today's athletes will be tomorrow's coaches. Today's coaches were yesterday's athletes. So at some point, we do need to break the cycle if we're going to have a sports culture that values and respects LGBT individuals. But in a way, I guess the hierarchy in, in sport is, it does create this pressure that we, we actually need to be focusing more to get some coaches to come out and than actually worry so much about the athletes themselves. I think it's, uh, for, for me, it's, it's about understanding that the athletic institution is like an onion. There are all these different layers to that onion. So we have, we have our coaches is one layer. We have our owners, our agents, our sponsors, our fans. And in my thinking, until we have each layer of that athletic onion being vocally inclusive about LGBT issues, there is still going to be some sort of um, perceived risk of either speaking out positively about LGBT issues or, or coming out as an LGBT individual in sports. I, mean, I think it's been interesting to look at race as an experience where I think certainly if I look at professional soccer now that's become a, an issue where you know, race has been taken seriously in a way that perhaps LGBT issues haven't been. I, I, do you think you can learn much from the experience of, of, the, of the race relations movement? Yeah, I think, uh, well, one, um, those pioneering, uh, certainly African-American players in the United States did, I think, more to change culture than, than a lot of other sectors of society. So when you have out active athletes, uh, that will change hearts and minds, and I think we can see that from, from history. 
Um, the other thing that I would say is you look at uh, South Africa and apartheid and how sport played a role in changing that, uh, it was front and center. You know, you have the 1968 Mexico City, uh, you know, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. And so when athletes use their platform with a purpose, it changes hearts and minds in a way that little else does. And I think we saw that with uh, you know, racial equality. I think we still have a long way to go, obviously, with LGBT equality, with sexism in sports. But ultimately, if athletes stand up and speak out, um, I think we'll be creating a world in which everybody has equal and access and opportunity in sport. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Olympics, because I, I guess the last Winter Olympics was the first time we really had LGBT issues um, right to the forefront, and you had athletes you know, I, I guess in the end, actively discouraged by the authorities from uh, you know, sort of making any kind of overt statement of criticism of Russia's attitude towards LGBT people. I mean, what, what do you learn from that? And I, were you surprised corporate sponsors didn't play a bigger role in trying to, you know, sort of maybe threaten to boycott or, or whatever? <laughs> well, it's, it's difficult because there are a lot of competing interests. You know, if you're a top sponsor at the Olympics, there's a lot of money on the line. Uh, in making these decisions. So as much as any company or team or league cares about LGBT equality, there are other matters at stake. Um, what I think was interesting uh, about Sochi is that, okay, no, we were not able to change the laws within Russia. No, it is not uh, drastically better for the LGBT people there. But if we look at the IOC and their policies around LGBT, the LGBT community, that has changed, that has improved. Um, you know, and so I think the, our opportunity is to make a very clear and consistent state, statement that the principles of sport mandate that we create an equitable experience for everyone. And if we can ag all agree to come to that place, then the extension of that is that, well, guess what? If you're a country who wishes to host the Olympic Games, then you must also practice those same principles that are, that are true in sports. And so if you're Russia, you can't pass an anti-gay propaganda bill to host another Olympics. Uh, you know, and so I think the business of sport can be more, um, can play a bigger role in influencing the, the LGBT policies globally. It's interesting, uh, we've seen you know, with North Carolina and the bathroom uh, mm -hmm. laws just the other week that some of the sort of showcase sporting games, the all-star games and things that were due to be played in, Car in Charlotte mm -hmm. and so forth, I mean, they've been moved or threatened with being moved. I mean, do you think that can happen? I mean, I guess we have a World Cup soccer coming up in Russia. Yeah. Uh, plenty of reasons <laughs> not, not, to, not to do things with Russia at the moment, but I mean, do you think this could swing things there? I, I don't think that we're in a, in a place and time where... Uh, there's enough pressure to change the location of an of a athletic venue once it has been awarded. I think that's a very difficult task. However, I do think that we can create a, a series of human rights standards that we demand of our, our, of our sport governing bodies such that they don't get awarded to places that are not inclusive. And so when it comes to uh, North Carolina and HB2, I think we're going to see less sporting championships be awarded or no sporting championships be awarded to North Carolina as a result of that because the values and principles of sport require equality if you are a state or a city or a country who is not practicing those principles then you do not deserve the honor of hosting this Olympic or this sporting competition that will bring you revenue and visibility and uh, you know get you to be looked at in, in a favorable way. 
So just to, to finish, I mean, we have the Olympics coming up this summer. What what are you looking for from that as a as an advertisement for something positive happening towards LGBT inclusion? Sure. So on the Olympic side, I think we have uh, two things that. I'm very interested. One is I think we need to continue a dialogue about transgender and intersex athletes. Um, the Olympic movement still polices the gender of male and female athletes in a not a very inclusive way. So I think there's more reform there. Um, principle six of the Olympic Charter, which discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation, doesn't include gender identity. So that's something that is a, a fight that we will continue to fight um, to make sure that that is put in place. But then the second thing that I, I'm very interested in is in, um, we've been working with the Muhammad Ali Center on creating a declaration for human rights in sports. So again, some sort of human rights checklist that sport governing bodies should be required to follow or take into consideration in choosing where international sporting competitions go. Is so, this something on mobilizing athletes around? So, well, first it's organizing the, uh, the sort of sports thinkers, the lawyers, the activists who have a better policy, uh, you know, background and expertise. But then once we have that, uh, step two is then to, to organize the athletes. I mean, we did this with FIFA uh, to increase the role of women in FIFA governance. We organized about 150 athletes to write a letter to the FIFA executive committee. Um, they, you know, then voted to increase the role of women in FIFA governance. So I do think that when athletes speak, uh, the athletic institutions will listen. And when the athletic institutions are using their platform to advance and protect LGBT people, um, countries wishing to host any sport championship will follow suit. Um, so that's the goal. I think we still have a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, obviously, none of they're still the, the sports culture is still not that inclusive. But uh, but again, I think we have sport is one of the few things that cuts across countries. It cuts across races, religions, sexual orientations. Um, and so, if we can use sport as a as a vehicle for human rights globally, uh, I think it can change people's lives in, in a really unique way. Finally, I suppose when I look at um, the entertainment industry. Um, there was a real sense that when people like Ellen DeGeneres came out, that really provided a catalyst to a broader public um, to to sort of say, okay, actually, some of the people we really like are gay, um, and that's not no problem. And actually, it really, I think, played a key part in changing uh, society's attitudes. Do you think we're going to get a kind of Ellen DeGeneres moment in sport? And and does do athletes coming out, you know, will they become a sort of major sort of force to transform broader society? Yeah, I think uh, athletes are inherently role models. You know, every little kid who participates in sports aspires to be that professional athlete. So if you have uh, positive LGBT role models coming out or speaking out within sports, it certainly does uh, change hearts and minds in a unique way. The one thing that I would say, though, that particularly interests me about sports is when we look at sort of the pathway to LGBT equality, there is a spectrum of opinion, right? There are those who agree, those who disagree, for whatever reason. And my argument would be that, you know, the people listening to this podcast are probably uh, on one end of the spectrum, so we end up kind of preaching to the choir a little bit, right? But if we're talking to your everyday sports fan who isn't subscribed to an LGBT podcast or isn't on the mailing list of an LGBT organization. They are, however, tuning in and watching the football game or the soccer match or, you know, they are 
following their favorite players. And so if we can have the message of LGBT respect and inclusion coming from sports, it will reach that, that sort of segment of the spectrum, uh, of, the, of the attitude spectrum, who needs to be educated most. Uh, and so in that way, I, I think that uh, sports voices standing up and speaking out will accelerate the progress that's been made even faster and farther than we've been able to accomplish in the last couple of years. Well, on that note, um, I'd like to thank you, uh, Hudson. This has been the Pride and Prejudice podcast from The Economist Group, which is exploring the uh, business and economic case for LGBT inclusion. I'm Matthew Bishop, and I've been talking to Hudson Taylor, who is the founder and executive director of Athlete Ally.